This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Peter J. Wolf, an expert on the array of issues related to free-roaming cats, also known as community cats or feral cats. Wolf works for Best Friends Animal Society as Cat Initiatives Analyst, and in that role he has helped Best Friends shape its community cat policies and has overseen some of its national cat programs, doing so propelled by science and analysis, elements often missing from discussions and debates about feral cats. Not coincidentally, Wolf presides over Fox Felina, a blog carrying interest he writes that tends to offer analysis of a whole host of issues that relate to community cats, including trap, neuter, and return, or TNR. Wolf also regularly speaks on cat issues at national conferences and other educational gatherings. His inclination towards science and serious analysis is underscored by holding a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering and a master's degree in industrial design, and much of his pre-cat professional experience was in the realm of acquisition, analysis, and synthesis of quantitative and qualitative data. We have a discussion of feral cats and related issues like TNR. And with more of a foundation, in this case, hopefully, of research and science, when I speak with Peter J. Wolf in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Helen Freund, food and dining critic at the Tampa Bay Times, who recently wrote a big piece charting the dramatic increase in the embrace of vegan food in the Tampa Bay area at restaurants and other eateries, grocery stores, food festivals, and elsewhere. We'll discuss some of the observations and findings in Freund's article when we speak with her later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk various aspects of feral cats and intersecting issues with Peter with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Peter J. Wolf on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks so much for uh, joining us today on Talking Animals. And so I guess my initial question is, how does someone go from holding a degree in mechanical engineering and a master's degree in LS in industrial design to becoming a community cat guy? Yeah, it's, it's, the, the path is not immediately apparent, is it? Well, um, you'll have to chart it for me, I think, because otherwise it's, yeah, like you say, it, it'd be hard to connect those dots, I think. Yeah, so... As you mentioned, I've, I've got a, my undergraduate degree is mechanical engineering. I worked for uh, 12 years in the automotive industry, and it was uh, after those 12 years, I, I returned to school to get a master's degree, and it, that was at Arizona State University, and it was at that time I first uh, kind of stumbled onto this, this whole larger issue about community cats and trap neuter return, and because I was at a research university at that time, I had access to all of the scientific journals. All the relevant research was essentially at my fingertips. And as I started looking into it to learn more about this, just more out of a curiosity than anything else, um, I found that there were, uh, there's a lot of uh, published research out there that's, excuse me, not uh, 
simply not very solid. Um, lots of repeated claims that aren't well supported by the research. And was, I found it rather astonishing, again, having kind of wandered into this as a curiosity. And at, at that point, uh, there was one article in particular I responded to the journal. I actually put together a, a detailed response pointing out the, the various holes in the, the arguments being made. And uh, that, that communication was, was rejected by the journal. And that's actually what sort of propelled me to start doing the blogging was uh, at that time sort of blogs were kind of coming out of everywhere. It's kind of like to podcast today. That was a way to get your voice out there. And so I started the blog kind of wondering would anybody, would anybody show up if you built it, would they really come yeah. it's such an esoteric uh, topic? Um, and that was, that was 11 years ago this month. Yeah. It, it looked like it, it really stretched back more than a decade. And, and that alone, I think is a notable, especially as you say now podcasts and there's so many other ways to communicate. So the fact that a blog is alive and well and influential, no less is significant in itself. Let me just back up to a couple of things you said and sort of tracing that arc of yours. So you're in the automotive industry and you went to get a master's. Was the thought at that point that the master's was going to be to further your career in the automotive industry or was that already marking a kind of a changing of gears for you? That was the, the intention at that point was uh, I, I had a pretty clear idea. I wanted to go design furniture. I wanted something that was still, uh, you know, kind of kind of analytical like the engineering, but much more creative than I was getting from the engineering career. And again, through a series of kind of happy accidents, uh, the program at Arizona State University, at least at that time, the graduate program was much more focused on research than on becoming a practicing industrial designer. Mm. Um, and, and again, the research component, I just really, really took to that. And then again, another happy accident, right when I was graduating, there was a, a teaching opportunity. And I, though I had sworn I was never going to teach, um, I spent the next several years teaching in uh, graphic design and industrial design programs. So um, again, not not uh, a, a very clear trajectory, but all of it, it, I think, ends up building a very solid foundation in, in rather unexpected ways. And also, it sounds like from what you mentioned earlier, that if that publication hadn't kind of just said, uh, hey, thanks, but no thanks to your submission, who knows if you would have veered off in that direction and said, hey, well, if that's what this is like, then I'm going to have to find another means to communicate my ideas on this. I, I have to say, I've never, <laughs> I've never actually thought of that until you just mentioned it, but it, it, it's true. These, you know, sort of uh, pivotal moments you recognize only looking back at them. Yeah. But it, it's true. It was, it was out of that frustration. Uh, I, you know, again, I was rather taken aback by, you know, well, wait a minute, this is, it, you, and, and the response had really nothing to do with the analysis, like, you know, well, you're not taking this into account or you're missing this or you're, you're reaching here. It was basically, as you said, no thanks. It, it was an unwelcome message is really what it was. And uh, in fact, the very next issue of that publication, there was a letter published that was very much in support of the article <laughs> I was critiquing. And that's, that's sort of when the light bulb went off. I said, oh, you're being kind of naive about this. This is what I'm up against. Yeah. Well, that is really interesting how something like that, seemingly minor kind of maybe at the time, but really did spur 
a whole different significant uh, path for you. Although, I guess, did this overlap as you started to get into cats? Was this, did this overlap then those years that you were teaching? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I was, uh, again, I stayed on after graduate school teaching at Arizona State. And at, at the time, um, and this would have been 2007, 2008, uh, Best Friends Animal Society, the organization I now work for, yeah. was involved in a massive hoarding case in Nevada. In, in, at, in, at the end of the day, there was nearly a thousand cats that they went in and rescued from this, this horrible situation. Mm. And because it was just about a five-hour drive for me, and I, I was aware of this, and uh, when I was teaching, I had summers off, so I, I volunteered a little bit with this, and that was really what first exposed me to the whole, you know, there's this whole issue about these stray feral cats, community cats, whatever we want to call them. Yeah. And there's this thing called CNR. And again, the fact that I was at a research university, I thought, you know, I could spend a lot of time in the library or online looking up all these articles. So that's really when um, when I was bitten by the bug. Through intervening and volunteering with that horrible, huge uh, hoarding case in particular. Yeah. And again, that was really my, you know, I mean, shoot, as a kid, more than one gray cat followed me home, not that I discouraged them to do so. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't as if I didn't know there were stray cats in the world, but this was where, again, on, on the scale of it, you saw sort of the challenges associated with how do we manage uh, effectively the, the numbers of, of unowned free-roaming cat uh, in any community or across the country. That was really the eye-opener. Yeah. Well, so you touched on something I was about to ask a little bit differently. So let's get the cat part of this narrative in there. So did you grow up with cats? Were cats part of the family uh, pet? Where does the cat thing start with you initially? I I always, uh, I, my family, we, we all love animals, but we never really, never had a cat exactly. And I think that was, that's, you know, kind of not uncommon of that era, the, the cat that hung out that kind of adopted you, but you never really considered your cat. Mm. Um, there, there was there was one or two of those, but never, you know, always wanted my own cat, and never, never really had that that opportunity until after I graduated from uh, from undergrad. So, were your folks just sort of opposed to having animals in the house? What prevented there from being a cat more officially adopted into the household? I, you know, in retrospect, it's not entirely clear because. Both of my parents really uh, loved cats, and as I say, when when the one I'm thinking of in particular with the you know least creative name ever, we called him New Cat because he was a new cat hanging around our house. Uh, when New Cat started hanging around, um, we made accommodations for him, but never quite crossed that line where where we said this is our cat. Hmm. Again, I think that was maybe not that uncommon where you understand or it was just sort of generally understood, yeah, there are stray cats around and they may decide to hang out with you for a while and then they may move on or maybe you bring them inside or whatever. But it was always always sort of that little bit at arm's length kind of relationship. Yeah. And it sounds like since it wasn't until you were an undergrad that you said, okay, well, now I'm going to have a cat that's actually living with me, that you did feel some kind of sense of uh, being deprived and felt like, okay, well, here's, uh, maybe that was kind of customary for the time, but I still kind of did wish I have a cat and now I'm going to get a cat because I'm I'm living on my own and I can have a cat. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in fact, uh, my undergrad work was at University of Detroit and 
as it happened just prior to graduation, uh, there was a, a cat. I, did, I couldn't have told you at the time. I'm quite sure it was a Maine Coon mix, big, big, tough uh, male cat, black and white, beautiful cat, starts hanging around the campus. I, I did not live on campus, but my, uh, the, uh, my classmate who I was going to room with after we both graduated, he did live on campus and, you know, very quickly uh, Reebok, as he came to be known, was also living on campus in the dorms illegally. And so as soon as we graduated, we took Reebok into the, the first apartment that we rented. Um, and I, that, again, that that was it, you know. And yeah. for years, uh, uh, I I had two cats thinking, you know, they can keep each other company while where, where I'm at work. And then somewhere along the line, that too very quickly, you know, uh, became 10. I, I don't have 10 any longer, but... Uh, Wow, I, I think it's and again working for best friends. If you've got ten pets, whatever they—dogs, cats, rabbits, birds, whatever they might be—if you've just got ten, if you can still count them in both hands, that you know people kind of look at you funny. That shows a lack of ambition. <laughs> That's <laughs> child's play, pet. right? Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you could you could do that in a good weekend. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because as you're describing this now, this is really kind of an arc that is not unfamiliar to me over the years from just talking with people, especially like the counterparts that people grew up in, in households that for whatever reason didn't have pets and or didn't have dogs. And then the person I'm talking to X amount of years later is like a huge dog person or in dog rescue or as a dog advocate or somehow involved with dogs. So it seems like we have kind of the the parallel path here with no cat early on. Okay, cat, undergrad, tail end of undergrad. Suddenly I got 10 cats. How's that? Tr- try that on for size. So uh, kind of making up for some lost time, it seems. I, I was just going to say, it's, you're, you're, it's, it's as if you're packing the same number of, of pets, dogs, cats, or otherwise, into a lifetime. Yeah. You just, you're, you're just playing catch up at that point. Yeah, sounds like it. And so what do you like about cats? What did you like about them as you went from zero to one to, in fairly short order, it sounds like even, ten? Uh, you know, it. that is one of the, I, I think, the hardest things to explain is what, what I like about cats. I think part of it, a big piece of it is that, and, you know, I'll, I'll be real clear, I, I'm, I'm in central Phoenix. It, I, I'm in a condominium. They all stay inside, you know, so it gets gets a little bit crowded even inside even as they are not nearly as active as they would be if they were outside you still see that wildness mm. in them mm-hmm. they, they have those moments where you you get a glimpse of you know you say oh that that what they're doing there what they're doing right now which is usually you know tends to be bordering on the destructive right that behavior is like, oh that's now they're being a cat that's really you know the the lounging on the sofa is one thing but when they're really you know, they're they're active they're playing especially you know if you've ever fostered kittens or whatever and you get to see them and again there's just this wildness so the idea of like living that close to nature in some way if they, if that makes any sense i just find you know just really fascinating and uh unlike you know, I, uh, I never had dogs but obviously a number of my colleagues do. Um, I understand dogs are very much people pleasers, and cats are not. You know, yeah. And I, I guess for some reason, I, I just think that that's really fascinating. Again, it is maybe that's part of the wildness or, or that being close, that idea of being close to nature. Um, that there, you're there, you're providing food, water, shelter, all this other stuff, companionship. But in so many ways, it's all on their terms, and they're not all that interested in. 
again, your approval or, or not. I, again, I just find that really fascinating. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think. Um, and has what you find appealing or enchanting about them changed uh, over these years of being in that kind of direct proximity? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it has in that maybe certainly as a a kid always wanting a cat but not being able to have one. I think I probably had some really naive notion about, you know, geez, if I could just have this cat, this cat would, he'd, he'd, you know, be my constant companion and he would be on my lap. And I I don't know what I thought we were going to you know, do together, yeah. but thought that there was much more of a, um, I won't even say bond, but again, sort of that, that interaction that is more common between a, a person and a dog than between a person and a cat. And now, again, having a better understanding, I, I, I think that that wildness, that, that distance, or again, just the, that, you know, everything is on their own terms. And part of that, I think, probably comes with it, it, when you have one or two cats versus I have seven cats, right? It, you know, if, if everyone needed to be in your lap for an hour in constant attention and all the rest of it, there's no time left in the day. So the yeah. idea of that their, their independence, um, I think, works works very well. And again, I have a certainly have a much greater appreciation. And the other thing I, I've grown to appreciate having multiples is you watch them interact with one another. And it's really interesting to see, again, how are they being a cat with another cat? And it's all different. And of course, if you get... You add one or lose one to the mix, and I tell people it's like you're reshuffling the deck. You don't know who, where the alliances are going to form. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't know what you got. And again, just watching that, I, I find just really fascinating. Now, I might circle back to that because I had uh, some other thoughts on that, but I want to let folks know who might just have only tuned in a moment ago. Let them know this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Peter J. Wolf, who is the Cat Initiatives Analyst for Best Friends Animal Society, which means, among other things, he probably knows a good deal more about feral cats than you or I do. If you'd like to ask Peter a question about feral cats, a.k.a. community cats or free-roaming cats, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So we've gotten a couple emails in and we've got a caller that's been holding, so let's get them involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Peter J. Wolf. Hello. Hello, go ahead, it's you. You're on the air. Oh, thank you very much. I'm uh, the proud owner of four uh, feral cats uh, that I've had for six years, and their personalities are all quite different, but they've all turned into really sweet, loving, in their own way, uh, cats. And, you know, I feel sort of like I've been inducted into their pride, but we share things, the same thing. If I'm outside, they're out. One of them, you know, they're out there kind of following me around. And uh, I think... Like with most animals, they respond to what you do. And I got them when they were very little, three were in the same litter, and the mama brought them to me, and then she disappeared. I got them all picked. But they respond to the the uh, touch and affection and talking to that you give them. And I do have them come up and sit on my lap and <laughs> while I'm watching TV, you know, so... You can't just say, um, and yet they have their own independence, and I love watching them uh, interact with each other, and uh, I totally agree that it it makes you feel closer to nature because there is a certain wildness in cats that dogs don't have, um, and yet they, you know, they can bond with you definitely, and they do have personalities which just take time to, to, to watch how different they are. You know, yeah. some, some play, some don't. Some, you know, of the four I have, only one of them is a playful one. And it's a big black tomcat that looks scary as can be. 
and he's just a big mush pot. He follows me around the yard and, and meows until I sit down so he can be in my lap, you know. <laughs> that's great. Well, that sounds good. Did you have a question for uh, Peter, or are you just happy to hear about the four that you have, but I didn't know if you might have a question for Peter as well. I wondered if there's any uh, reason why the community cat uh, community places that I've seen where people were feeding them and things and someone was monitoring the, the colony, why those are disappearing in my community in Florida. I don't see them anymore um, as much. Is there is there more of a, you know, the, the catch and release, you know, fix and release thing? Is that like passe now? Well, let me, before Peter answers, let me ask you, where specifically in Florida are you that you're seeing the colonies oh, disappear? In the, in the Tampa area. Okay. All right, Peter, Peter, go ahead, please. Sure. Um, Couple a couple points there, um, and uh, I, again, I, I I really appreciate the caller's comment um, uh, talking about how they, the cats interact um, uh, in their own way with everybody, and that that is true of the you know the, the house cats that we bring indoors, as it is to the the community cats outdoors. What I suspect might be going on Tampa, and I mean, and well, let me zoom out a little bit. Though. Trap neuter return efforts and, and what that is for listeners not familiar with it. And your caller alluded to this. It's a, a catch and release program or, or goes by a number of names, but the, the cats are humanely trapped. They're brought to a veterinarian to be sterilized. Um, typically at that point, they're also vaccinated against the rabies and then they're returned to where they were found. And this has been going on in the U.S. since say, the early or mid 90s. And um, Certainly, I'm aware of efforts in, in Tampa in the surrounding area have been uh, extensive, really intense trap to return. And, and as a result of that, it's quite possible there's fewer cats. Um, and and that, could be, that could explain why she's seeing fewer of them. It's also the case that in most instances, uh, and I'm, I'm a caregiver myself, I've, I have uh, TNR'd a bunch of cats in the, the neighborhood where I live. And we all generally try to keep the location of the cat as, as kind of secret as possible. We don't want the cat to be seen necessarily. So that could also explain why she's not seeing so many of them. Okay. Well, that's great. Thank you, caller. And thank you, Peter, for your yes, uh, response. Thank you for your show. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye now. So, Peter, you, you noted in that answer that you're a caregiver and you've TNR'd a bunch of cats. When did this might go back even to that initial horrible uh, hoarding case that you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation. But when did actually uh, tending to feral cats, community cats, et cetera, enter the picture for you on this kind of basis? I, I, as I say, when I was at Arizona State is when I first kind of became aware of the issue. And like many uh, college campuses, um, Arizona State has a campus cat cared for by uh, student volunteers, some staff volunteers as well, and so occasionally I would I would go out with them, and we would go uh, trap any new cats that showed up on the uh, on the campus. Um, so that's when I first started doing just a little bit of, of trapping, and then really that kicked in. I mean, I, w- I would you know volunteer to help somebody in, in, you know nearby um, on and off for a number of years, but the the neighborhood where I live, um, there's a, a my trapping buddy and I have been trapping there for, gosh, probably four or five years now. Mm. Um, and really, really uh, seen the, the numbers come down, far fewer kittens than there, there ever were. So it's, it's, it's kind of become an interesting, you know, I've got my day job, as it, as it were, uh, where I'm spending, you know, the vast majority of my time is reading and writing, occasionally traveling to conferences or something like that. But then by having that hands-on experience uh, and 
typically in the evenings, of going out, doing the trapping, transporting them to the clinic, returning them, um, and then being a caregiver, which, which means not just providing food and water, but monitoring for new arrivals so that they too can be trapped and sterilized. Um, it, it, it kind of grounds the, the theoretical elements of the day job, right, where you see the practical, you know, here, here's what happens when you do uh, intensive trap neuter return. You see the numbers go down. You see fewer kittens. You also see, uh, by the way, uh, especially if you've got an area where there's a lot of cats, tends to lead to nuisance complaints. And part, yeah. a lot of that is related to mating behavior. And so you see uh, things can get pretty tense among uh, among neighbors. And you see that, you know, the temperature kind of come down there too. Once all the cats are fixed, there's not the spraying, the yowling, the fighting that they were accustomed to. And so even folks who are maybe not cat people can, can be okay with their being community cats once they're fixed, once they're well-managed. Well, that brings me to, uh, I guess, a key question, which is that community cats, feral cats, call them whatever name you like, but they also can be, even beyond ways you just mentioned, a polarizing topic. Commonly voiced concern about feral cats is the impact on birds. Another concern is other local wildlife and the impact that feral cats, community cats have on those. Um, so, uh, in terms of data, real research, kind of your uh, bailiwick, uh, how significant is the threat posed by feral cats to birds? And again, another key concern that comes up is to wildlife. As you say, this is sort of that, that particular uh, aspect of the, the larger topic is is kind of where I got started with this whole thing. And, and what I've seen over the last several years is the vast majority of claims about the impacts to wildlife are simply can't be reconciled with uh, what we know, for example, from uh, annual bird counts. There's, there's just an awful lot of exaggerated claims, which are then just repeated over and over again. Um, where, where we have seen cats have significant impacts on wildlife is typically islands, right? And it's, it's not, difficult to imagine why that would be the case. Um, and in those situations, it's also typically the case that it's not just cats. In fact, there's actually been some researchers that have, have done some interesting modeling work to show if you've got an island, and these are small oceanic islands typically, mm. if you've got an island that has both cats and rats, and again, that's a common scenario, uh, they both typically came from you know, aboard ship at one point many, many years ago, if you have both and you remove only the cat to protect the seabirds, which is typically the rationale, it typically backfires and the rat population will explode and decimate the birds you were trying to protect. Um, and so the, the recommendation there is you need to remove both cats and rats. You can't just do one. And again, it, it speaks to, you know, the interconnectedness of, you know, ecological systems. It's not, you, you, you can't have such a narrow focus just to focus on cats. Now, on the mainland, it's, it's a different ballgame. You typically do not see those sorts of impacts. And part of the reason for that is, again, there's good science to support this. The cats are where the people are. They're called a commensal species. And again, this starts with, you know, uh, many, many, you know, thousands of years ago with with the development of agriculture, that's why cats started hanging around people because with agriculture came rodents or the cats. Here comes the cats. They hang out where the people are, which means the greatest density of cats corresponds with the greatest density of human populations. They're in the urban areas with the rest of us, which tend, of course, to be highly disturbed areas. These are not pristine nature anymore. So that helps explain why uh, the, the claims about these these uh all these impacts of wildlife are, are 
largely exaggerated. Now that said, um, you know, I don't think anyone's suggesting uh, that uh, there should be more free roaming cats or that there are zero impacts in, in these various environments. And this is again where trap neuter return comes in as in most instances, it's the best option we have to manage and over time reduce their numbers. Uh, the traditional way of, of, I was going to say managing cats in this country, but it's it's not really managing, is impoundment to a shelter followed by lethal injection for those who aren't adoptable. And nobody's been able to demonstrate that that worked. I mean, that, that, yeah. again, that's been the uh, default in this country for so long. If it worked, there wouldn't be so many cats out there. So, again, for the, I, I, would, I encourage folks who are concerned about uh, wildlife impacts or environmental impacts or any sort of impacts that, that pre-roaming cats might have, that's where that's where TNR is. Again, that's really the best that we have in most instances is sterilize them, vaccinate them, manage their populations. I mean, we, we always say we want to work ourselves out of a job, right? Because that's right. the goal is eventually, you know, the, 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 the group of cats living outside um, by sheer attrition, if you're, if you're doing it well, um, you bring their numbers down. Right. Well, that's in some ways the thing you talked about, the, the other version of, of a, a cat is taken uh, to a shelter, not adopted, then euthanized. Um, and all that does is have a fraction, of course, of the expedition do. But from what I understand over the years, that just creates a vacuum that's filled at wherever that cat was taken from, whereas the colony that is being TNR'd regularly, what you see is sometimes what the, the, the caller asked about, which is that if, if more cats aren't joining that colony, eventually over time, the colony starts to really diminish because it has been, uh, they, they have been TNR'd. And uh, so it's the, almost a complete opposite result. Yes. Uh, in, in fact, um, you know, one of the maybe the longest term, uh, longest duration TNR study, um, uh, Dan Spihar, my co-author, and I published that uh, a couple of years ago, and that was at University of Central Florida in in Orlando. Twenty eight years of data they had monitoring these cats, and and what they saw was um, at last count it was down to nine or ten. At its peak, it was. Somewhere in the 70, 75 range, mm. which for, for a, a university campus is, you know, is not a, a huge number. Yeah. But uh, what they saw was not not just the number decrease, but eventually, you know, there there's no need of a feeding station at a particular building because all the cats have gone. And And one of the most impressive results we saw in that study was early on after they really, uh, again, started monitoring, um, doing regular censuses of the cats, really getting some hard data behind it. And there were no more kittens born on campus, which in and of itself, you know, is a huge, now you've shut off the tap. You're still going to, you know, you might have some cats coming in because again, you're in an urban area. Uh, Maybe students leave their college cat behind or something. There's a new arrival for that reason. But the very fact that there's no more kittens being born, after, again, fairly early in that TNR project, is that, that in and of itself is a win, right? Again, yeah. You shut off the tap. Right. 
All right, well, let's uh, let's get a caller or two and an email or two involved in the conversation uh, again. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Peter J. Wolf. Hi, me? Yes, go ahead, please. Hey, my name is Lori. I live in South St. Pete, and um, I've been doing trap neuter vaccinate release for about six years, um, and I do that predominantly in my neighborhood. Um, I started out with the group Meow Now. Um, that formed and changed the ordinance in Pinellas County to allow for organizations and individuals to actually do this without having to take ownership of the animal. Um, and it was a big shift for me to, because I've been, I love cats and I grew up with them and I, it seems like I find them everywhere and they find me my whole life. So it was a big change for me to do C and VR and just let them out rather than trying to find them a home. But as we know, it's just impossible to find them all homes, um, it, the, the domesticated ones, I mean. But um, one thing I wanted to mention is don't forget the ear tip. I don't know if you mentioned that um, but earlier in the show, but um, they do come back with an ear tip. Did you mention that to your to your listeners? That, that has not been mentioned yet. So, okay, yeah, so- yeah, yeah. Go, maybe just quickly describe that, and then we're going to move along because we got uh, we're sort of running short of time. We got well, callers and emailers I and stuff. To, I wanted to also say that what I found in the six years that I've been doing this on my street is, unfortunately, they don't last long. Um, they either get hit by cars, they get killed by coyotes. Bad people seem to come and pick them up um, and use them, you know, for dog fights, things like that. So um, it, it, it's a very big problem here in South St. Petersburg, um, and um, I've trapped over 50 cats or 60 cats here on the street, and there's less than 10 of the original cats um, that I first did. So, mm. so that colony is definitely uh, diminishing there for sure. All right, yeah, Lori, so- thank, thank you so much for your call. Yeah, thanks. Bye. So the uh, ear tip thing, just briefly, is that once a cat is a TNR to TNVR, as part of that process, they will just take a little tip of the ear off as a signal to future rescuers of that colony that that cat has already been spayed or neutered and uh, gotten its vaccination. So that's what the ear tip she was referring to is. So let's let's get one of our emailers just kind of about, uh, yeah. So this one uh, writes in, what qualities or abilities would a CEO of a TNVR organization need, especially if the TNVR program were the only one formed in a town? What would you look for in this person when considering hiring such a person in order to have a successful program? Peter? Ooh, that that is a that's a really good question. I would say, um, and and this I think holds true across animal welfare is lots of folks get involved in animal welfare because not surprisingly they love animals, but maybe aren't people people so much. And what you quickly learn is if you're not a people person, you're going to have a hard time saving lives of animals. Um, and so being able to you know, to have those, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, emotional intelligence, soft skills, but to be able to work with people because that's, you, you need to build a network. And if everyone just says, look, I'm, I'm just here for the animals. I don't want to, you know, deal with other people. You can't build that network. And that's what's required really to have a community-wide 
uh, TNVR program. Okay, thanks for that, Peter. So let's uh, get to another email here. I live in Tampa, and believe me, there is no shortage of community slash feral cats here. We TNVR and find that many people in apartment complexes move out and leave their animals behind. Some are fixed and some are not. The last nine we trapped, one was covered in maggots and had to be put down immediately. One needed its tail amputated, and the others needed major medical care. Irresponsible humans, that's the problem. So that's uh, from one emailer. Another one, this came up and reminded me of our uh, most immediate previous caller. I'm allergic to cats, but I brought my feral cats in. Things are balanced now, but it was an adjustment because it was clear they were devastating the birds and native wildlife. And I realized from friends' losses that coyotes soon learn where the cats are fed and pick them off nightly for an easy meal. They've come up to my own house because they herd cats. All my very ferals... Uh, sorry, just reading it as is here. Tamed. Some became big babies over time. So, uh, and then um, this one says, great show. I have, I have a once feral cat trapped and got fixed right before Hurricane Irma. And then kept me as wonderful cat. I had a litter of feral kittens at my previous house that hung out and I would feed them. They became very friendly. I called one of the shelters here in Sarasota to see if I could trap them and bring them in to be fixed and then put up for adoption. They said they do not take feral cats because they never become socialized. Any thoughts? Any response to that, Peter? Yeah, so uh, a, a couple thoughts. There's there's kind of a rule of thumb uh, with, with kittens born outside, feral kittens, if we want to call them that. Um, there's, you, you've got kind of a narrow window of time when you can get them socialized. Now, there will be exceptions that just, you know, they're all individuals. They'll come around, they'll be more social than their siblings. But in general, yes, by the time you get to, you know, young adolescents, if they're not socialized, they're unlikely that they they will be. But the exception, I think, is, and you hear this all the time, we've heard it from some of your your listeners, is, first of all, once they're fixed, that, again, uh, that reduces, um, you know, a a lot of the the kind of... uh, wildness uh, uh, or the nuisance behaviors and, and all the rest of it, but they'd often become what I find is socialized to an individual. So you'll talk to caregivers who will, you know, they've got, uh, you know, cats they feed regularly, march right up to them, their tails up in the air, they're happy to all, by all appearances, it looks like, you know, this is their long lost house cat or something like that. But they're only socialized to that individual. Someone else feeds for them one night. They don't have the same experience. That cat has learned to trust one person, maybe two persons, you know, if they come into a household or something. So you can imagine from uh, from a, a shelter or a rescue, that's a headache when they get an unsocialized or marginally socialized adult cat. That's not a great adoption candidate at all, especially when they have numerous very adoptable cats that that cat is competing with. Um, so it, it, it's definitely a challenge um, to get, you know, find those cats homes, which again is why they're historically so many have, uh, have landed in the shelter and that trip to the shelter was one way because they were not going to get adopted and yeah. they were, they, they never made it out 
the, the front door. All right, Peter. So we just have about a minute or so left, but I want to read at least one more email. I don't quite understand the very beginning of it. There may have been a typo or a proofreading mistake. But I'm going to read it as is because it represents kind of the other side of the philosophical divide that we had talked about a little bit earlier in our show. So it says, cats in the United States, it is estimated, kill between 2.4 billion cats each year, 4 to 18 each cat every year, 8 to 21 small mammals. Where have all the birds gone? Cat wildness is the cause. I do not understand why the state of Florida does not consider them an exotic slash nuisance species like the boa constrictor. If they were sterilized community dogs running wild, killing the size of animals that they can handle, humans included, just because they are wild, would never be tolerated. Save the fauna. So if you have a sort of a brief response or comment to that, and I think that's about all the time we might have for today's conversation. Sure. Um, again, there's there's a great deal of misinformation out there, including the, the number of birds killed. The notion that uh, cats are invasive is, again, a red herring more than anything else. The question is, what do we do? It, it's estimated there are maybe 30, 35 million unknown free-roaming cats out there. What we've been doing hasn't worked. Again, we, the only thing that ever has worked is intensive eradication programs, like on islands. The largest of which, by the way, is roughly the size of Tampa, and it took 19 years to eliminate about 3,000 cats. So that's a non-starter. And that all kind of points us back to, you know, targeted trap neuter return, whatever your interest, whether your interest is in the cats or protecting wildlife, that's that's what we've got. That's that's really the tool in the toolbox. All right. Well, that might be where we need to leave it. Maybe we're going to have to see if we can invite you back on the show, Peter, because there's uh, still some calls pending and some uh, emails, but we have kind of reached the end of our time. But we've been speaking with Peter J. Wolf, who's with Best Friends Animal Society. Uh, the website for Best Friends is simply bestfriends.org, the, um, where you can find his uh, blog that we talked about earlier in the show, Vox Felina. It's V-O-X-F-E-L-I-N-A.com. So, Peter, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. Like I say, I may try to uh, put the squeeze on it to come back just because there's a lot of uh, more questions and comments that I think folks uh, have for you that we'll uh, try to accommodate another time if that's okay. You're, you're not going to have to twist my arm. I, I'll come back anytime. Thank you for having me. That's so great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. In a moment, we'll talk with Helen Freund, food and dining critic at the Tampa Bay Times. She just wrote a deeply reported story examining the significant surge in the popularity and consumption of vegan food in the Tampa Bay area. It appears to have really taken off seemingly in just about every direction, and momentum seems to still be building, as clearly suggested in Freund's piece. We'll discuss it with her in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WF. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a uh, piece that seems, uh, I think, highly appropriate as a prelude to our conversation with Helen. This is Julian Torres with a piece called I Am Vegan in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WNO. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, I am uh, uh, Julio. Um, I'm originally from El Salvador, um, but I am... I live in Brooklyn now at a... uh, Como se dice? Uh, vegan queer collective. Um, I am a, I am vegan, and I am so sorry. Uh, in my experience, uh, the hardest part about being vegan is all of the um, uh, the apologizing. Uh, people ask me if I miss uh, meat or dairy. I, I mean, I miss being liked. Uh, 
and I I don't miss cheese, but I do miss getting asked to do things. I uh I miss my friends and I miss my family. That is Julian Torres with a piece called I Am Vegan in today's Comedy Corner, taken from one of his TV appearances. Now it's time to speak with Helen Freund, food and dining critic of the Tampa Bay Times. His recent piece documented the veritable explosion of vegan eating and offerings in and around Tampa. It truly feels like she's chronicling a seismic shift here, and I'm excited to discuss the story with her. This is Helen Freund on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Helen. Good morning. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals and uh, really, really enjoyed the piece and really did cover that vegan explosion in sort of all corners of Tampa. Were there two or three things that you noticed that prompted you to decide, hey, there's a real major story going on here? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for having me, and thank you for letting me weigh in. Um, it was a really fun story to report. Uh, I will say I moved here about almost two years ago now from New Orleans, which, you know, while it's a fantastic uh, restaurant city, great culinary scene, does not have a lot of vegan or plant-based options to speak of. So when I first moved here, my first impression already two years ago was that there was a lot of vegan options. There were a lot of uh, restaurants that were not vegan that were definitely, you know, offering plant-based dishes and, you know, to kind of appease to a, a bigger segment of the population. And that really struck me. And then within the last two years, I saw that grow even more. So I'd say that was sort of the main point. And just, you know, going out to eat all the time and noticing more and more that there really were options on just regular restaurant menus that were plant-based, they were vegan, um, and that really, it was, it, it felt like there was a, there was a conscious effort being made. Yeah, well, one of the things that you point out in, in your piece is that there are more and more, of course, vegan restaurants, but yeah, more and more vegan dishes added to restaurants that aren't vegan. And also, as part of that kind of a sub-trend, uh, I guess, within that, is that you note that diners um, are often ordering those dishes, whether at a vegan restaurant or another restaurant, that aren't necessarily vegan themselves. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, even at a national level, polls have shown that the amount of diners that are now trying plant-based options and vegan options um, has grown exponentially. And so I think that it's a real business decision. If you're a restaurant owner and you, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you were pretty much limited to like a tofu scramble or a garden burger, right? Or, you know, the running joke of, the, of being a vegan 10 years ago was like ordering a side of French fries and an iceberg salad. Um, so now, you know, or, you know, cobbling together a bunch of uh, like a broccoli or potatoes or whatever the veggie sides were. And that was pretty much it, right? So I think restaurant owners notice that there's an increasing, you know, portion of our dining populace that's going out now that thinking differently about why they eat and what they put into their body, whether it's for, you know, no matter what their reason might be. Um, and I think as a, you know, as a restaurant operator, it's a, it's a financial decision too, to start offering more options that to make their, you know, clients happy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that brings me to another point, but I just want to quickly add, because someone here just wrote in an email, and um, I believe this story, at least in print, correct me if I'm wrong, Helen, ran a week ago today, so on the uh, on the 8th, I want to no, say? 
You know, it it ran. It actually came out in print today. Um, oh, okay. So it was online before that. Okay, that's that's exactly. where the confusion it was. was. Online okay. About a week ago. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we're even better time than I thought. That's great. How, how fortuitous. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, because another offshoot of that about um, just the business sense that it makes is one thing that you kind of detail in your story too is that as more vegan restaurants uh, opened, instead of owners feeling sort of competitive or territorial, it seemed that most welcome the the newer places and just partly because it was just making Tampa more of a serious and top-notch place to eat vegan. Absolutely. And, you know, a couple years ago, maybe we were still a little bit behind the curve and cities on the West Coast, certainly San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, you know, they've always been a little bit ahead of us as far as vegan options go. Um, But now we're really becoming, Tampa Bay is like a big contender on the scene. And I think, you know, it's something that's driving um, it's driving an interest in tourism too. I think people that may have been a little bit that are you know that eat exclusively vegan may have been a little bit hesitant to travel to places where they thought, oh, I might not be able to find anything on the menu there, and that's changed. Um, and the same goes for people that are looking at the Tampa Bay area as a place where they may want to you know move, so potential residents. Yes, yeah, so here's one of my key questions as we uh, reach the end of our time here, probably. Uh, so this story is, as I mentioned, kind of a reported feature. It's not a review, but you are the food and dining. Critics. So I imagine you tried some of the food along the way. What are some of your thoughts? What did you think of some of the things that you did have or did try as part of the story? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, gosh, there's so many options. There's so many. I had so much great food. Um, one of my favorite places that I tried out was a place in Seminole Heights in Tampa called Ground Foods Cafe. It's an Italian vegan restaurant. So they've got pastas, um, flatbread pies or pizzas, however you want to call them. Um, so and you can get stuff like you know, a Caesar salad with a cashew parmesan or uh, pizza with an almond ricotta instead of cheese um, and seitan for meat on top. So that place was really great. Um, okay, I, we have, sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Yeah. Just we have time for maybe one more quick one, and then we're sort of really okay. literally at the end of the show. I'm sorry. Oh no, no problem. I was just going to say uh, three dot dash in Seminole Heights as well, and uh, Golden Dinosaurs Deli in Gulfport. Both great. Wow, well that's a good trio right there. So thank you so much. So again, the story is in print today at the Tampa Bay Times online elsewhere. This has uh, been Helen Freund, and she's the dining and food critic at the Tampa Bay Times. So thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals and great story. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again. Okay, bye bye. Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa.